Once upon a time, the forest was in a great commotion. Early in the evening, the wise old cedars had shaken their heads ominously and predicted strange things. They had lived in the forest many, many years, but never had they seen such marvelous sights as were to be seen now in the sky and upon the hills and in the distant village. Pray tell us what you see, pleaded a little vine. We who are not as tall as you can behold none of these wonderful things. Describe them to us, that we may enjoy them with you. I am filled with such amazement, said one of the cedars, that I can hardly speak. The whole sky seems to be aflame, and the stars appear to be dancing among the clouds. Angels walk down from heaven to the earth and enter the village or talk with the shepherds upon the hills. The vine listened in mute astonishment. Such things never before had happened. The vine trembled with excitement. Its nearest neighbor was a tiny tree, so small it scarcely ever was noticed. Yet it was a very beautiful little tree, and the vines and ferns and mosses and other humble residents of the forest loved it dearly. How I should like to see the angels, sighed the little tree, and how I should like to see the stars dancing among the clouds. It must be very beautiful. As the vine and the little tree talked of these things, the cedars watched with increasing interest the wonderful scenes over and beyond the confines of the forest. Presently they thought they heard music, and they were not mistaken for soon the whole air was full of the sweetest harmonies ever heard upon earth. What beautiful music, cried the little tree. I wonder whence it comes. The angels are singing, said a cedar, for none but angels could make such sweet music. But the stars are singing too, said another cedar. Yes, and the shepherds on the hills join in the song. And what a strangely glorious song it is! The trees listened to the singing, but they did not understand its meaning. It seemed to be an anthem, and it was of a child that had been born, but further than this they did not understand. The strange and glorious song continued all the night, and all that night the angels walked to and fro, and the shepherd folk talked with the angels, and the stars danced and caroled in high heaven and it was nearly morning when the cedars cried out, They are coming to the forest! The angels are coming to the forest! And surely enough, this was true. The vine and the little tree were very terrified, and they begged their older and stronger neighbors to protect them from harm. But the cedars were too busy with their own fears to pay any heed to the faint pleadings of the humble vine and the little tree. The angels came into the forest, singing the same glorious anthem about the child, and the stars sang in chorus with them, until every part of the woods rang with echoes of that wondrous song. There was nothing in the appearance of this angel host to inspire fear. They were clad all in white, and there were crowns upon their fair heads, and golden harps in their hands. Love, hope, charity, compassion, and joy beamed from their beautiful faces and their presence seemed to fill the forest with a divine peace. The angels came through the forest to where the little tree stood, and gathering around it, they touched it with their hands and kissed its little branches, and sang even more sweetly than before. And their song was about the child, 
the child, the child that had been born. Then the stars came down from the skies and danced and hung upon the branches of the tree, and they too sang that song, the song of the child. And all the other trees and the vines and the ferns and the mosses beheld in wonder. Nor could they understand why all these things were being done, and why this exceeding honor should be shown the little tree. When the morning came, the angels left the forest, all but one angel, who remained behind and lingered near the little tree. Then a cedar asked, Why do you tarry with us, holy angel? And the angel answered, I stay to guard this little tree, for it is sacred, and no harm shall come to it. The little tree felt quite relieved by this assurance, and it held up its head more confidently than ever before. And how it thrived and grew, and waxed in strength and beauty. The cedars said they never had seen the like. The sun seemed to lavish its choicest rays upon the little tree. Heaven dropped its sweetest dew upon it, and the winds never came to the forest that they did not forget their rude manners and linger to kiss the little tree and sing it their prettiest songs. No danger ever menaced it, no harm threatened, for the angel never slept. Through the day and through the night the angel watched the little tree and protected it from all evil. Oftentimes the trees talked with the angel, but of course they understood little of what he said, for he spoke always of the child who was to become the master. And always when thus he talked, he caressed the little tree and stroked its branches and leaves and moistened them with his tears. It was also very strange that none in the forest could understand. So the years passed, the angel watching his blooming charge. Sometimes the beasts strayed toward the little tree and threatened to devour its tender foliage. Sometimes the woodman came with his axe, intent upon hewing down the straight and comely thing. Sometimes the hot, consuming breath of drought swept from the south and sought to blight the forest and all its verdure. The angel kept them from the little tree. Serene and beautiful it grew, until now it was no longer a little tree, but the pride and glory of the forest. One day the tree heard someone coming through the forest. Hitherto the angel had hastened to its side when men approached, but now the angel strode away and stood under the cedars yonder. Dear angel, cried the tree, can you not hear the footsteps of someone approaching? Why do you leave me? Have no fear, said the angel, for he who comes is the master. The master came to the tree and beheld it. He placed his hands upon its smooth trunk and branches, and the tree was thrilled with a strange and glorious delight. Then he stooped and kissed the tree, and then he turned and went away. Many times after that the master came to the forest, and when he came it was always to where the tree stood. Many times he rested beneath the tree and enjoyed the shade of its foliage, and listened to the music of the wind as it swept through the rustling leaves. Many times he slept there, and the tree watched over him, and the forest was still, and all its voices were hushed, and the angel hovered near like a faithful sentinel. Ever and anon men came with the master to the forest, and sat with him in the shade of the tree, and talked with him of matters which the tree never could understand. Only it heard that the talk was of love and charity and gentleness, and it saw that the master was beloved and venerated by the others. 
It heard them tell of the Master's goodness and humility, how he had healed the sick, had raised the dead, had bestowed inestimable blessings wherever he walked. And the tree loved the Master for his beauty and his goodness, and when he came to the forest it was full of joy, but when he came not it was sad. And the other trees of the forest joined in its happiness and its sorrow, for they too loved the Master. And the angel always hovered near. The Master came one night alone into the forest, and his face was pale with anguish and wet with tears, and he fell upon his knees and prayed. The tree heard him, and all the forest was still, as if it were standing in the presence of death. And when the morning came, lo, the angel had gone. Then there was a great confusion in the forest. There was a sound of rude voices and a clashing of swords and staves. Strange men appeared, uttering loud oaths and cruel threats, and the tree was filled with terror. It called aloud for the angel, but the angel came not. Alas, cried the vine, they have come to destroy the tree, the pride and glory of the forest. The forest was sorely agitated, but it was in vain. The strange men plied their axes with cruel vigor, and the tree was hewn to the ground. Its beautiful branches were cut away and cast aside, and its soft, thick foliage was strewn to the tenderer mercies of the winds. They are killing me, cried the tree. Why is not the angel here to protect me? But no one heard the piteous cry, none but the other trees of the forest. And they wept, and the little vine wept too. Then the cruel men dragged the despoiled and hewn tree from the forest, and the forest saw that beauteous thing no more. But the night wind that swept down from the city of the great king that night to ruffle the bosom of distant Galilee tarried in the forest a while to say that it had seen that day a cross upraised on Calvary, the tree on which was stretched the body of the dying master. That was The First Christmas Tree by Eugene Field. Stop it! That wasn't a cue. Yeesh. So yeah, that took a pretty dark turn there. But not to sound too morbid and cynical, the entire holiday does revolve around... Excuse me. Huh? Excuse me there, Sonny. Um, can I help you? I'm here to tell a story about my prospecting days, I think. A story? Uh, Mark, you called me up. Mark? Mark Kynes? Mark Kynes? Oh. Oh. No, no, no. We were looking for Mike Carnes. Mike Barnes? No, Mike. Tyke? Mike. Never mind. I'll call him myself. Hello? Hey, Mike, it's Chris. Oh, hey, man, what's up? You still good to do Ring Once for Death? Yeah, sure. Uh, Let me just grab the script. Excellent. Thanks, buddy. So, should I just uh, go then? Oh, uh, yeah, fine. Anyway, please welcome the very first guest narrator to the Marezine, my good friend, Mike Carnes. Ring Once for Death by Robert Arthur
20 years had left no trace inside Sam Key's little shop on Mott Street. There were the same dusty jars of ginseng root and tiger's whiskers, the same little bronze Buddhas, the same knickknacks mixed with fine jade. Edith Williams gave a little murmur of pleasure as the door shut behind them. Mark, she said, it hasn't changed. It doesn't look as if a thing has been sold since we were here on our honeymoon. It uh, certainly doesn't, Dr. Mark Williams agreed, moving down the narrow aisle behind her. If someone hadn't told us Sam Key was dead, I'd believe we'd stepped back twenty years in time, like they do in those scientific stories young David reads. We must buy something, his wife said, for a twentieth anniversary present for me, perhaps a bell. From the shadowy depths of the shop, a young man emerged, American in dress and manner despite the Asian contours of his face and eyes. Good evening, he said. May I show you something? We uh, think we want a bell, Dr. Williams chuckled. But we aren't quite sure. You're Sam Key's son? Sam Key, Jr. My honored father passed to the halls of his ancestors five years ago. I could just say that he died. Black eyes twinkled. But customers like the more flowery mode of speech. They think it's quaint. I think it's just nice and not quaint at all, Edith Williams declared. We're sorry your father is dead. We'd hoped to see him again. Twenty years ago, when we were a very broke young couple on a honeymoon, he sold us a wonderful rose crystal necklace for half price. I'm sure he still made a profit, the black eyes twinkled again. But if you'd like a bell, here are some small temple bells, camel bells, dinner bells. But even as he spoke, Edith Williams's hand darted to something at the back of the shelf. A bell carved out of crystal, she exclaimed. And rose crystal at that. What could be more perfect? A rose crystal wedding present and a rose crystal anniversary present. The young man half stretched out his hand. I don't think you want that, he said. It's broken. Broken? Edith Williams rubbed off the dust and held the lovely bell shape of crystal, the size of a pear, to the light. It looks perfect to me. I mean, it is not complete, Something of the American had vanished from the young man. It has no clapper. It will not ring. Why, that's right. Mark Williams took the bell. The clapper's missing. We can have another clapper made, his wife declared. That is, if the original can't be found. The young Chinese man shook his head. The bell and the clapper were deliberately separated by my father twenty years ago, he hesitated, then added, My father was afraid of this bell. Afraid of it? Mark Williams raised his eyebrows. The other hesitated again. It will probably sound like a story for tourists, he said, but my father believed it. This bell was supposedly stolen from the temple of a sect of Buddhists somewhere in the mountains of China's interior. 
Just as many Occidentals believe that the Christian Judgment Day will be heralded by a blast on St. Peter's trumpet, so this small sect is said to believe that when a bell like this one is rung, a bell carved from a single piece of rose crystal and consecrated by ceremonies lasting ten years, any dead within sound of it will rise and live again. Heavenly, Edith Williams cried, and uh, no pun intended. Mark, think what a help this bell will be in your practice when we make it ring again. To the Chinese man, she added, smiling, I'm just teasing him. My husband is really a fine surgeon. The other bowed his head. I must tell you, he said, you will not be able to make it ring. Only the original clapper, carved from the same block of rose crystal, will ring it. That is why my father separated them. Again, he hesitated. I have only told you half of what my father told me. He said that, though it defeats death, death cannot be defeated. Robbed of his chosen victim, he takes another in his place. Thus, when the bell was used in the temple of its origin, let's say when a high priest or a chief had died, a slave or servant was placed handy for death to take when he had been forced to relinquish his grasp upon the important one. He smiled, shook his head. There, he said, a preposterous story. Now, if you wish it, the bell is ten dollars, plus, of course, sales tax. The story alone is worth more, Dr. Williams declared. I think we'd better have it sent, hadn't we, Edith? It'll be safer in the mail than in our suitcase. Sent? His wife seemed to come out of some deep feminine meditation. Oh, of course. And as for its not ringing, I shall make it ring. I know I shall. If the story is true, Mark Williams murmured, uh, I hope not. The package came on a Saturday morning when Mark Williams was catching up on the latest medical publications in his untidy book-lined study. He heard Edith unwrapping paper in the hall outside. Then she came in with the rose crystal bell in her hands. Mark, it's here, she said. Now to make it ring. She plumped herself down beside his desk. He took the bell and reached for a silver pencil. Just for uh, the sake of curiosity, he remarked, and not because I believe that delightful sales talk we were given. Let's see if it will ring when I tap. It should, you know. He tapped the lip of the bell. A muted thunk was the only response. Then he tried with a coin, a paper knife, and the bottom of a glass. In each instance, the resulting sound was nothing like a bell ringing. If you've finished, Mark, Edith said then with feminine tolerance, let me show you how it's done. Gladly, her husband agreed. She took the bell and turned away for a moment. Then she shook the bell vigorously. A clear, sweet ringing shivered throughout the room, so thin and ethereal that small involuntary shivers crawled up his spine. Good Lord! he exclaimed. How did you do that? I just put the clapper back in place with some thread, Edith told him. The clapper? 
He struck his forehead with his palm. Don't tell me. The crystal necklace we bought 20 years ago. Of course. Her tone was composed. As soon as young Sam Key told us about his father separating the clapper and the bell, I remembered the central crystal pendant on my necklace. It is shaped like a bell clapper. We mentioned it once. I guessed right away we had the missing clapper, but I didn't say so. I wanted to score on you, Mark. She smiled affectionately at him. And because, you know, I had an odd feeling Sam Key Jr. wouldn't let us have the bell if he guessed we had the clapper. I don't think he would. Mark Williams picked up his pipe and rubbed the bowl with his thumb. Yet, he didn't really believe that story he told us any more than we do. No, but his father did. And if old Sam Key had told it to us, remember how wrinkled and wise he seemed? I do believe we'd have believed the story. Uh, you're probably right. Dr. Williams rang the bell and waited. The thin, sweet sound seemed to hang in the air a long moment, then was gone. Nope, he said. Nothing happened. Although, of course, that may be because there was no deceased around to respond. I'm not sure I feel like joking about the story. A small frown gathered on Edith's forehead. I had planned to use the bell as a dinner bell and to tell the story to our guests, but now I'm not so sure. Frowning, she stared at the bell until the ringing of the telephone in the hall brought her out of her abstraction. Sit still, I'll answer. She hurried out. Dr. Williams, turning the rose crystal bell over in his hand, could hear the sudden tension in her voice as she answered. He was on his feet when she re-entered. An emergency operation at the hospital, she sighed. Nice young man, automobile accident, fracture of the skull, Dr. Amos says. He wouldn't have disturbed you, but you're the only brain man in town with Dr. Hendricks away on vacation. I know. He was already in the hall, reaching for his hat. Man's work is from sun to sun, but a doctor's work is never done, he misquoted. I'll drive you, Edith followed him out. You sit back and relax for another ten minutes. Two hours later, as they drove homeward, the traffic was light, which was fortunate. More than once, Mark, in a frowning abstraction, found himself on the left of the center line and had to pull back into his own lane. He had lost patience before, but never without a feeling of personal defeat. Edith said he put too much of himself into every operation. Perhaps he did. And yet... No. There was every reason why the young man should have lived. Yet, just as Mark Williams had felt that he had been successful, the patient had died. In twenty years of marriage, Edith Williams had learned to read his thoughts at times. Now she put a hand comfortingly on his arm. These things happen, darling, she said. You know that. A doctor can only do so much. Some of the job always remains in the hands of nature, and she does play tricks at times. Yes, confound it, I know it, her husband growled. But I resent losing that lad. 
There was no valid reason for it, unless there was some complication I overlooked. He shook his head, scowling. I ordered an autopsy, but yes, I'm going to do that autopsy myself. I'm going to turn back and do it now. I have to know. He pulled abruptly to the left to swing into a side road and turn. Edith Williams never saw the car that hit them. She heard the frantic blare of a horn and a scream of brakes, and in a frozen instant realized that there had been someone behind them about to pass. Then the impact came, throwing her forward into the windshield and unconsciousness. Edith Williams opened her eyes. Even before she realized that she was lying on the ground and that the figure bending over her was a state trooper, she remembered the crash. Her head hurt, but there was no confusion in her mind. Automatically, even as she tried to sit up, she accepted the fact that there had been a crash. Help had come, and she must have been unconscious for several minutes at least. Hey, lady, take it easy, the trooper protested. You had a bad bump. You gotta lie still until the ambulance gets here. It'll be along in five minutes. Mark? Edith said, paying no attention. My husband, is he all right? Now, lady, please, he's being taken care of. You... But she was not listening. Holding to his arm, she pulled herself to a sitting position. She saw their card on its side some yards away. Other cars pulled up around them. A little knot of staring people. She saw them and dismissed them. Her gaze found her husband lying on the ground a few feet away, a coat folded beneath his head. Mark was dead. She had been a doctor's wife for twenty years, and before that a nurse. She knew death when she saw it. Mark. The word was spoken to herself, but the trooper took it for a question. Yes, lady, he said. He's dead. He was uh, still breathing when I got here, but... He died two, three minutes ago. She got to her knees. Her only thought was to reach his side. She scrambled across the few feet of ground to him, still on her knees, and crouched beside him, fumbling for his pulse. There was none. There was nothing. Just a man who had been alive, and now was dead. Behind her, she heard a voice raised. She turned. A large, disheveled man was standing beside the trooper, talking loudly. Now listen, officer, he was saying. I'm telling you again, it wasn't my fault. The guy pulled sharp left right in front of me, not a thing I could do. It's a wonder we weren't all three of us killed. You can see by the marks on their car, it wasn't my fault. Edith Williams closed her mind to the voice. She let Mark's hand lie in her lap as she fumbled in her bag, which was somehow still clutched in her fingers. She groped for a handkerchief to stem the tears which would not be held back. Something was in the way. Something smooth and hard and cold. She drew it out and heard the thin, sweet tinkle of a crystal bell. She must have dropped it automatically into her bag as they were preparing to leave the house. The hand in her lap moved. 
She gasped and bent forward as her husband's eyes opened. Mark, she whispered. Mark, darling. Edith, Mark Williams said with an effort. Sorry, damned careless of me, thinking of the hospital. You're alive, she said. You're alive. Oh, darling, darling, lie still. The ambulance will be here any second. Ambulance? He protested. I'm all right now. Help me sit up. But Mark, just a bump on the head. He struggled to sit up. The state trooper came over. Easy, buddy, easy, he said, his voice awed. We thought you were gone. Now let's not lose you a second time. His mouth was tight. Hey, I'm sure glad you're all right, the red-faced man said in a rush of words. Whew, fella, you had me all upset, even though it wasn't my fault. I mean, how's a guy gonna keep from hitting you when, when... Catch him, Mark Williams cried, but the trooper was too late. The other man plunged forward to the ground and lay where he had landed without quivering. The clock in the hall struck two with muted strokes. Cautiously, Edith Williams rose on her elbow and looked down at her husband's face. His eyes opened and looked back at her. You're awake, she said unnecessarily. I woke up a few minutes ago, he answered. I've been lying here, thinking. I'll get you another phenobarbital. Dr. Amos said for you to take them and sleep until tomorrow. I know, I'll take one presently. You know, hearing that clock just now reminded me of something. Yes? Just before I came to this afternoon, after the crash, I had a strange impression of hearing a bell ring. It sounded so loud in my ears I opened my eyes to see where it was. A... Bell? Yes, just auditory hallucination, of course. But Mark? Yes? A... A bell did ring. I mean, I had the crystal bell in my bag and it tinkled a little. Do you suppose? Of course not. But though he spoke swiftly, he did not sound convincing. This was a loud bell, like a great gong. But, I mean, Mark, darling, a moment earlier you had no pulse. No pulse? And you weren't breathing. Then the crystal bell tinkled and you, you... Nonsense. I know what you're thinking, and believe me, it's nonsense. But Mark, she spoke carefully, the driver of the other car, you had no sooner regained consciousness than he... He had a fractured skull, Dr. Williams interrupted sharply. The ambulance intern diagnosed it. Skull fractures often fail to show themselves, and then, bingo, you keel over. That's what happened. Now, let's say no more about it. Of course. In the hall, the clock struck the quarter hour. Shall I fix the phenobarbital now? Yes. Uh, no. Is David home? She hesitated. No, he hasn't got back yet. Has he phoned? 
He knows he's supposed to be in by midnight at the latest. No, he hasn't phoned, but there's a school dance tonight. That's no excuse for not phoning. He has the old car, hasn't he? Yes, you gave him the keys this morning, remember? All the more reason he should phone. Dr. Williams lay silent a moment. Two o'clock is too late for a seventeen-year-old boy to be out. I'll speak to him. He won't do it again. Now, please, Mark, let me get you the phenobarbital. I'll stay up until David... The ringing phone, a clamor in the darkness, interrupted her. Mark Williams reached for it. The extension was beside his bed. Hello? he said. And then, although she could not hear the answering voice, she felt him stiffen. And she knew. As well as if she could hear the words, she knew, with a mother's instinct for disaster. Yes, Dr. Williams said. Yes, I see. I understand. I'll come at once. Thank you for calling. He slid out of bed before she could stop him. An emergency call. He spoke quietly. I have to go. He began to throw on his clothes. It's David, she said. Isn't it? She sat up. Don't try to keep me from knowing. It's about David. Yes, he said. His voice was very tired. David is hurt. I have to go to him. An accident. He's dead. She said it steadily. David's dead, isn't he, Mark? He came over and sat beside her and put his arms around her. Edith, he said. Edith. Yes, he's dead. Forty minutes ago, the car went over a curve. They have him at the county morgue. They want me to I identify him. Identify him, Edith. You see, the car caught fire. I'm coming with you, she said. I'm coming with you. The taxi waited in a pool of darkness between two streetlights. The long, low building, which was the county morgue, a blue lamp over its door, stood below the street level. A flight of concrete steps went down to it from the sidewalk. Ten minutes before, Dr. Mark Williams had gone down those steps. Now he climbed back up them, stiffly, wearily, like an old man. Edith was waiting in the taxi, sitting forward on the edge of the seat, hands clenched. As he reached the last step, she opened the door and stepped out. Mark? she asked shakily. Was it? Yes, it's David. His voice was monotone. Our son. I've completed the formalities. For now, the only thing we can do is go home. I'm going to him. She tried to pass. He caught her wrist. Discreetly, the taxi driver pretended to doze. No, Edith, there's no need. You mustn't see him. He's my son, she cried. Let me go. No. What have you got under your coat? It's the bell, the rose crystal bell, she cried. I'm going to ring it where David can hear. Defiantly, she brought forth her hand, clutching the little bell. It brought you back, Mark. 
Now it's going to bring back David. Edith, he said in horror, you mustn't believe that's possible. You can't. Those were coincidences. Now let me have it. No, I'm going to ring it. Violently, she tried to break out of his grip. I want David back. I'm going to ring the bell. She got her hand free. The crystal bell rang in the quiet of the early morning with an eerie thinness, penetrating the silence like a silver knife. There, Edith Williams panted. I've rung it. I know you don't believe, but I do. It'll bring David back. She raised her voice. David, she called. David, son, can you hear me? Edith, Dr. Williams groaned. You're just tormenting yourself. Come home. Please, come home. Not until David has come back. David, David, can you hear me? She rang the bell again, rang it until Dr. Williams seized it. Then she let him take it. Edith, Edith, he groaned. If only you would let me come alone. Mark, listen. What? Listen, she whispered with fierce urgency. He was silent. And then fingers of horror drew themselves down his spine at the clear, youthful voice that came up to them from the darkness below. Mother? Dad? Where are you? David, Edith Williams breathed. It's David. Let me go. I must go to him. No, Edith, her husband whispered frantically as the voice below called again. Dad? Mother, are you up there? Wait for me. Let me go, she sobbed. David, we're here. We're up here, son. Edith, Mark Williams gasped. If you've ever loved me, listen to me. You mustn't go down there. David, I had to identify him by his class ring and his wallet. He was burned, terribly burned. I'm going to him. She wrenched herself free and sped for the steps, up which now was coming a tall form, a shadow shrouded in the darkness. Dr. Williams, horror nodding his stomach, leapt to stop her. But he slipped and fell headlong on the pavement so that she was able to pant down the stairs to meet the upcoming figure. Oh, David, she sobbed. David. Hey, Mom. The boy held her steady. I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. But I didn't know what had happened until I got home and you weren't there. And then one of the fellows from the fraternity called me. I realized they must have made a mistake and you'd come here. And I called for a taxi and came out here. My taxi let me off at the entrance around the block. And I've been looking for you down there. Poor Pete. Pete? She asked. Pete Friedberg? He was driving the old car. I lent him the keys and my driver's license. I shouldn't have, but he's older and kept bugging me. Then, then it's Pete who was killed? She gasped. Pete who was burned? Yes, Pete. I feel terrible about lending him the car, but he was supposed to be a good driver. And then, them calling you, you and dad thinking it was me. Then Mark was right. Of course he was right. 
She was laughing and sobbing now. It's just a bell, a pretty little bell, that's all. Bell? I don't follow you, Mom. Never mind. Edith Williams gasped. It's just a bell. It hasn't any powers over life and death. It doesn't bring back and it doesn't take away. But let's get back up to your father. He may be thinking that the bell, that the bell really worked. They climbed the rest of the steps. Dr. Mark Williams still lay where he had fallen headlong on the pavement. The cab driver was bending over him, but there was nothing to be done. The crystal bell had been beneath him when he fell, and it had broken. One long, fine splinter of crystal was embedded in his heart. Now, I really wasn't initially planning this issue to be so dark. I had worked out featuring Mike in December with this story, and this was the best place to put it. I had already planned on the first Christmas tree. Will you cut that out? So I sat down to read it to see if I could make it work at all. So I'm reading it going, well, isn't this quaint? And then I got to the end and, oh boy. As it turns out, the stories kind of work together. And if we take this through line of death and rebirth, we come to a fairy tale. Yes, a fairy tale. The Juniper Tree by the Brothers Grimm. And if you're at all familiar with the Grimm bros, you know what kind of fairy tales they actually write. I like fairy tales. Didn't you go home already? You've got a buffet table. That's my pantry. Yeesh. So here we are, the juniper tree. The Juniper Tree by the Brothers Grimm. Long, long ago, some two thousand years or so, there lived a rich man with a good and beautiful wife. They loved each other dearly, but sorrowed much that they had no children. So greatly did they desire to have one, that the wife prayed for it day and night, but still they remained childless. In front of the house there was a court, in which grew a juniper tree. One winter's day, the wife stood under the tree to peel some apples, and as she was peeling them, she cut her finger, and the blood fell on the snow. Ah, sighed the woman heavily, if I had but a child as red as blood and as white as snow. And as she spoke the words, her heart grew light within her, and it seemed to her that her wish was granted, and she returned to the house feeling glad and comforted. A month passed, and the snow had all disappeared, then another month went by, and all the earth was green. So the months followed one another, and first the trees budded in the woods, and soon the green branches grew thickly intertwined, and then the blossoms began to fall. Once again the wife stood under the juniper tree, and it was so full of sweet scent that her heart leapt for joy, and she was so overcome with happiness that she fell on her knees. Presently the fruit became round and firm, and she was glad and at peace. But when they were fully ripe, she picked the berries and ate eagerly of them. And then she grew sad and ill. A little while later, she called her husband and said to him, weeping, If I die, bury me under the juniper tree. 
Then she felt comforted and happy again, and before another month had passed, she had a little child. And when she saw that it was as white as snow and as red as blood, her joy was so great that she died. Her husband buried her under the juniper tree and wept bitterly for her. By degrees, however, his sorrow grew less, and although at times he still grieved over his loss, he was able to go about as usual, and later on he married again. He now had a little daughter born to him. The child of his first wife was a boy, who was as red as blood and as white as snow. The mother loved her daughter very much, and when she looked at her, and then looked at the boy, it pierced her heart to think that he would always stand in the way of her own child and she was continually thinking how she could get the whole of the property for her. This evil thought took possession of her more and more, and made her behave very unkindly to the boy. She drove him from place to place with cuffings and buffetings, so that the poor child went about in fear, and had no peace from the time he left school to the time he went back. One day the little daughter came running to her mother in the storeroom, and said, Mother, give me an apple. Yes, my child, said the wife and she gave her a beautiful apple out of the chest. The chest had a very heavy lid and a large iron lock. Mother, said the little daughter again, may not brother have one too? The mother was angry at this, but she answered, Yes, when he comes out of school. Just then she looked out of the window and saw him coming, and it seemed as if an evil spirit entered into her, for she snatched the apple out of her little daughter's hand and said, You shall not have one before your brother. She threw the apple into the chest and shut it too. The little boy now came in, and the evil spirit in the wife made her say kindly to him, My son, will you have an apple? But she gave him a wicked look. Mother, said the boy, how dreadful you look. Yes, uh, give me an apple. The thought came to her that she would kill him. Come with me, she said, and she lifted up the lid of the chest. Take one out for yourself? and as he bent over to do so, the evil spirit urged her, and crash, down went the lid, and off went the little boy's head. Then she was overwhelmed with fear at the thought of what she had done. If only I can prevent anyone knowing that I did it, she thought. So she went upstairs to her room, and took a white handkerchief out of her top drawer. Then she set the boy's head again on his shoulders, and bound it with the handkerchief, so that nothing could be seen, and placed him on a chair by the door with an apple in his hand. Soon after this, little Marlene came up to her mother, who was stirring a pot of boiling water over the fire, and said, Mother, brother is sitting by the door with an apple in his hand, and he looks so pale. And when I asked him to give me the apple, he did not answer, and that frightened me. Go to him again, said her mother, and if he does not answer, give him a box on the ear. So little Marlene went, and said, Brother, give me that apple. But he did not say a word. Then she gave him a box on the ear, and his head rolled off. She was so terrified at this that she ran crying and screaming to her mother. Oh, she said, I have knocked off brother's head. And then she wept and wept, and nothing would stop her. What have you done? said her mother. But no one must know about it, so you must keep silence. What is done can't be undone. We will make him into puddings. And she took the little boy and cut him up, made him into puddings, and put him in the pot. But Marlene stood looking on, and wept and wept, and her tears fell into the pot so that there was no need of salt. 
Presently the father came home and sat down to his dinner. He asked, Where is my son? The mother said nothing, but gave him a large dish of black pudding, and Marlene still wept without ceasing. The father again asked, Where is my son? Oh, answered the wife, he is gone into the country to his mother's great uncle. He is going to stay there sometime. What has he gone there for, and he never even said goodbye to me? Well, he likes being there, and he told me he should be away quite six weeks. He is well looked after there. I feel very unhappy about it, said the husband, in case it should not be all right, and he ought to have said goodbye to me. With this he went on with his dinner, and said, Little Marlene, why do you weep? Brother will soon be back. Then he asked his wife for more pudding, and as he ate, he threw the bones under the table. Little Marlene went upstairs and took her best silk handkerchief out of her bottom drawer, and in it she wrapped all the bones from under the table and carried them outside, and all the time she did nothing but weep. Then she laid them in the green grass under the juniper tree, and she had no sooner done so than all her sadness seemed to leave her, and she wept no more. And now the juniper tree began to move, and the branches waved backwards and forwards, first away from one another and then together again, as it might be someone clapping their hands for joy. After this a mist came round the tree, and in the midst of it there was a burning as of fire, and out of the fire there flew a beautiful bird that rose high into the air, singing magnificently, and when it could no more be seen, the juniper tree stood there as before, and the silk handkerchief and the bones were gone. Little Marlene now felt as light-hearted and happy as if her brother were still alive, and she went back to the house and sat down cheerfully to the table and ate. The bird flew away and alighted on the house of a goldsmith and began to sing. My mother killed her little son, my father grieved when I was gone. My sister loved me best of all. She laid her kerchief over me and took my bones that they might lie underneath the juniper tree. Kiwit, kiwit, what a beautiful bird am I. The goldsmith was in his workshop making a gold chain when he heard the song of the bird on his roof. He thought it so beautiful that he got up and ran out, and as he crossed the threshold he lost one of his slippers. But he ran on into the middle of the street with a slipper on one foot and a sock on the other. He still had on his apron and still held the gold chain and the pincers in his hands. And so he stood gazing up at the bird while the sun came shining brightly down on the street. Bird, he said, how beautifully you sing. Sing me that song again. Nay, said the bird, I do not sing twice for nothing. Give that gold chain and I will sing it you again. Here is the chain, take it, said the goldsmith. Only sing me that again. The bird flew down and took the gold chain in his right claw, and then he alighted again in front of the goldsmith, and sang it again. Then he flew away, and settled on the roof of a shoemaker's house, and sang, My mother killed her little son, my father grieved when I was gone. My sister loved me best of all. She laid her kerchief over me, and took my bones that they might lie underneath the juniper tree. Kiwit, kiwit, what a beautiful bird am I. The shoemaker heard him, and he jumped up and ran out in his shirt sleeves, and stood looking up at the bird on the roof with his hand over his eyes to keep himself from being blinded by the sun. Bird, he said, how beautifully you sing. And he called through the door to his wife. Wife, come out. 
Here is a bird. Come and look at it and hear how beautifully it sings. Then he called his daughter and the children, then the apprentices, girls and boys, and they all ran up the street to look at the bird and saw how splendid it was with its red and green feathers and its neck like burnished gold and eyes like two bright stars in its head. Bird, said the shoemaker, sing me that song again. Nay, answered the bird, I do not sing twice for nothing. You must give me something. Wife, said the man, go into the garret. On the upper shelf you will see a pair of red shoes. Bring them to me. The wife went in and fetched the shoes. There, bird, said the shoemaker. Now sing me that song again. The bird flew down and took the red shoes in his left claw, and then he went back to the roof and sang it again. When he had finished, he flew away. He had the chain in his right claw and the shoes in his left, and he flew right away to a mill, and the mill went click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. Inside the mill were twenty of the miller's men hewing a stone, and as they went, hick, hack, hick, hack, hick, hack, the mill went click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. The bird settled on a lime tree in front of the mill and sang, My mother killed her little son. Then one of the men left off. My father grieved when I was gone. Two more men left off and listened. My sister loved me best of all. Then four more left off. She laid her kerchief over me and took my bones that they might lie. Now there were only eight at work. Underneath. And now only five. The juniper tree. And now only one. Kiwit, kiwit. What a beautiful bird am I. Then he looked up, and the last one had left off work. Bird, he said, what a beautiful song that is you sing. Let me hear it too. Sing it again. Nay, answered the bird. I do not sing twice for nothing. Give me that millstone, and I will sing it again. If it belonged to me alone, said the man, you should have it. Yes, yes, said the others. If he will sing again, he can have it. The bird came down, and all the twenty millers set to and lifted up the stone with a beam. Then the bird put his head through the hole and took the stone round his neck like a collar and flew back with it to the tree and sang. And when he had finished his song, he spread his wings, and with the chain in his right claw, the shoes in his left, and the millstone round his neck, he flew right away to his father's house. The father, the mother, and little Marlene were having their dinner. How light-hearted I feel, said the father, so pleased and cheerful. And I, said the mother, I feel so uneasy as if a heavy thunderstorm were coming. But little Marlene sat and wept and wept. Then the bird came flying towards the house and settled on the roof. I do feel so happy, said the father, and how beautifully the sun shines. I feel just as if I were going to see an old friend again. Ah! said the wife, and I am so full of distress and uneasiness that my teeth chatter, and I feel as if there were a fire in my veins. And she tore open her dress. And all the while little Marlene sat in the corner and wept, and the plate on her knees was wet with her tears. The bird now flew to the juniper tree and began singing. My mother killed her little son. The mother shut her eyes and her ears that she might see and hear nothing but there was a roaring sound in her ears like that of a violent storm, and in her eyes a burning and flashing like lightning. 
My father grieved when I was gone. Look, mother, said the man, at the beautiful bird that is singing so magnificently, and how warm and bright the sun is, and what a delicious scent of spice in the air. My sister loved me best of all. And little Marlene laid her head down on her knees and sobbed. I must go outside and see the bird nearer, said the man. Ah, do not go, cried the wife. I feel as if the whole house were in flames. But the man went out and looked at the bird. She laid her kerchief over me and took my bones that they might lie underneath the juniper tree. Kiwit, kiwit, what a beautiful bird am I. With that, the bird let fall the gold chain, and it fell just round the man's neck, so that it fitted him exactly. He went inside and said, See what a splendid bird that is. He has given me this beautiful gold chain, and looks so beautiful himself. But the wife was in such fear and trouble that she fell on the floor, and her cap fell from her head. Then the bird began again. My mother killed her little son. Ah, me! cried the wife. If I were but a thousand feet beneath the earth, that I might not hear that song. My father grieved when I was gone. Then the woman fell down again as if dead. My sister loved me best of all. Well, said little Marlene, I will go out too and see if the bird will give me anything. So she went out. She laid her kerchief over me and took my bones that they might lie. And he threw down the shoes to her. Underneath the juniper tree. Kiwit, kiwit, what a beautiful bird am I. And she now felt quite happy and lighthearted. She put on the shoes and danced and jumped about in them. I was so miserable, she said, when I came out. But that has all passed away. That is indeed a splendid bird, and he has given me a pair of red shoes. The wife sprang up, with her hair standing out from her head like flames of fire. Then I will go out too, she said, and see if it will lighten my misery, for I feel as if the world were coming to an end. But as she crossed the threshold, crash, the bird threw the millstone down on her head, and she was crushed to death. The father and little Marlene heard the sound and ran out, but they only saw mist and flame and fire rising from the spot. And when these had passed... There stood the little brother, and he took the father and little Marlene by the hand, and they all three rejoiced and went inside together and sat down to their dinners and ate. I did abridge the story a bit to remove three more times of that song. It just kept repeating over and over. Ah, that was a nice song. Thank you. You've got a lovely singing voice. Didn't you go home yet? You've uh, got a bar. That's my liquor cabinet. Good gravy. I like gravy. Oh, for crying out. Anyway, next week is our Christmas episode. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for guesting, Mike. You can find Mike Carnes at www.mikecarnesvo.com and look him up on Audible. Thank you for joining us for another Mayorsy. 
If you like the podcast, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.